2: This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new
1: segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael
2: Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The institution of slavery is inextricably woven into the establishment, history, and prosperity of the United States constitutionally and statutorily sanctioned from 1619 to 1865, slavery deprived more than 4 million Africans and their descendants of life, liberty, citizenship, cultural heritage, and economic opportunity. Following the abolition of slavery, government entities at the federal, state and local levels continued to perpetuate, condone and often profit from practices that brutalized African Americans and excluded us from meaningful participation in society. Segregation, racial terror, harmful racist neglect and other atrocities in nearly every sector of civil society have inflicted harms which cascade over a lifetime and compound over generations. This legacy of slavery and racial discrimination has resulted in debilitating economic, educational, and health-related hardships that are uniquely experienced by African-Americans. As part of California's Historic Assembly Bill 3121, enacted in September of 2020, the California Task Force to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African-Americans was formed and charged with studying the institution of slavery and its lingering negative effects on living African Americans, as well as on society. The bill also requires the task force to recommend appropriate remedies of compensation, rehabilitation, and restitution for African Americans, and with a special consideration for descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. With the final report expected in 2023, building on months of public hearings, hours of expert public and witness testimony and numerous records submitted on June 1st. The reparations task force released an interim report, as well as their preliminary set of corrective recommendations, providing an in-depth overview, the first of its kind, of the harms inflicted on African Americans in California and across the nation due to the ongoing legacy of slavery and systemic discrimination. Here with us to share more about this monumental report, the data And their drawn conclusions we have reparations task force chair scholar and attorney miss camila moore this is the black information network daily podcast and i'm your host ramses ja so welcome to the show camila moore how are you doing today
2: good thanks for having me ramses
3: a lot of a lot of heavy stuff to talk about today um and and timely I'd say long overdue in fact. So let's start at the beginning. Um, first off, let's learn a little bit about you. Share with our audience a bit about your background, um, sort of what led you to the path that you're on right now.
2: Sure. So again, my name is Camila Moore and I'm from Los Angeles, California. In terms of my background, you know, I was raised in a family and environment that, um, you know, praised learning about, you know, African-American history and culture. So, even at a very young age, like uniquely so, you know, I love to read about African-American history and literature. And I even, you know, read slave narratives very (laughs) early on as a child. And so, um, you know, this idea around, you know, reparations, um, you know, being central to stories around, you know, African-American history is something that I learned very early on. And so, you know, when I went to UCLA as an undergrad, um, you know, I had reparations on my mind. Um, you know, when I went to Columbia Law School, um, that's where I got more serious about um, studying reparations and utilizing my law degree to really legitimize the conversation around reparatory justice for um, the U.S. institution of slavery. And you know, while I was at Columbia, I also um, got a dual degree or Master of Laws in International Criminal Law from the University of Amsterdam during a study abroad program. And that's where now I wrote a a master thesis on global repertory justice for people of African descent for the transatlantic slave trade, uh, slavery, and the afterlife of slavery or the legacy of slavery. And in that thesis, I primarily focused on the United States, but I also touched on Black Brazilians and Black Colombians. And I essentially leveraged my experience as a law student um, and as a repertory justice scholar uh, to be a part of this historic first in the nation task force.
3: So um, how did the task force and and ultimately the interim report come together? What's the origin story uh, there?
2: So the origin story of the task force, it really starts with uh, California state. Secretary of State Shirley Weber, when she was in the assembly, when she was in the assembly, she championed uh, AB 3121, which this task force scopes and powers are predicated on. She shepherded bipartisan support for it. She worked alongside grassroots organizations to support it. And then California Governor Gavin Newsom signed the bill into law in September 2020. Um, A month after um, Gavin Newsom signed it into law, Um, There was a process for, um, you know, getting people to apply to the task force. So um, there were three appointed officials. So Governor Gavin Newsom appointed five people. The Speaker of the California State Assembly appointed two people. And I was appointed by the Speaker of the California State Assembly. And then the Speaker of the California Senate appointed two people. And so the task force first met um, in June of last year and since June of last year. So it's been a year. Right. Exactly. So over this past year, we've held um, a series of virtual public hearings on substantive topics, chronologically starting with the transatlantic slave trade to more contemporary atrocities against the African-American community. And in those virtual public hearings, we've invited people to, of course, uh, provide public comment in the beginning of each meeting, but uh, we've invited people to also provide personal and expert testimony on the topics that we covered. And if you look at the 500 page report, you'll see um, testimony from our personal and expert witnesses are interspersed in this this report. But essentially, this 500-page report is something that we were mandated to do as a task force. If you look at AB 3121, which is the statute that the task force scopes and powers are predicated on, and it was mainly written by the California uh, DOJ civil rights attorneys, um, who in the statute, they're required to provide us administrative, technical, and legal assistance. Um, But the actual project was supervised and managed by the nine member task force. So we were you know, essentially telling them what to put in there, um, what scholarship to draw on. And yeah, that's the origin story.
3: Now, you mentioned that uh, the report draws its information and conclusions from a variety of sources, including hearings, expert, public witness testimonies, and from various records submitted to the task force. Uh, can you provide us with some sort of behind the scenes insight into those activities as far as sort of what types of hearings were held, the types of people involved, the types of testimonies and statements received, et cetera?
2: Sure. So um, there's a section in the report that talks about an overview of the activities. And in total, since this last year, the task force has heard over 40 hours of testimony from 103 witnesses Mm -hmm. and 16 hours of public comment we received over a thousand and seventy five emails and one hundred phone calls. Wow. Um, Yes, and um, in terms of the substantive topics that we covered um, at the hearings, I can, you know, I have a really great memory, so I don't mind sharing. So um, at our September hearing, we discussed the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of slavery, and the impetus and implications of the Great Migration. Um, in October, uh, we discussed you know, gentrification, um, infrastructure, and homelessness. In December, we discussed entertainment, arts, sports, and media. Um, In January, we had um, a substantive hearing about anti-Blackness in technology. Um, In February, we had like a celebratory Black History Month gathering. Um, In March, we um, decided as a task force the community of eligibility. So we decided um, on a lineage-based rather than a race-based standard. And then we also, in March, also held a hearing around the criminal legal system and anti-Blackness Um, in terms of the criminalization of African-Americans. And then at our April hearing, which was our first in-person meeting, which occurred at the historic Third Baptist Church in San Francisco, uh, we discussed um, education right, and anti-Blackness in education. And our next hearing isn't until September. So yeah, stay tuned.
3: So that brings me to the next question. Um, Looking forward, so in the interim report that uh, includes 500 pages it's filled with verified historical facts, qualified conclusions, et cetera. What additionally can we expect when it comes to the final report that you'll be releasing in 2023?
2: Yes. So you're exactly right. In the interim report, essentially what I characterize it as you know, is a collection um, of all the evidence that you know, we've collected over this past year that really substantiates the claim for African-American reparations on a municipal, state, and federal level, mm-hmm. what you'll notice what's missing in this report is you know, a comprehensive final plan for what reparations should look like. Okay. Also, what's missing is a plan for compensation. So in our final report, which, re- which is going to be released next summer in July, um, you'll see in that report, you know, a final comprehensive plan for reparations. And then also, of course, included in that is a plan for uh, compensation. There will also be a discussion around how we decided on the community of eligibility in the final report as well, and a conversation about international law. Because if you look at the statute, um, it mandates that our recommendations have to comport with international human rights law standards.
4: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them Visit betterhelp.com slash B I N today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp. slash B I N.
5: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this: there's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the US. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
0: Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow.
3: In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are here today with Reparations Task Force Chair, Scholar, and Attorney, Ms. Camila Moore. Discussing the task force's recently released interim report, its findings and the impact on the future of the black community. All right. Now, this report illuminates the governmental and economic institutions that have significant ties to slavery. How should we as a black community be viewing these systems and entities that have caused this debilitation, death and destruction to our identities, families and communities?
2: Uh, That's a really good question. And, you know, that that question reminds me of some of the key findings in the report, particularly around the racial wealth gap. And and clearly in the report, we state that, for instance, right, uh, black Americans have uh, nine times less um, assets than white Americans. Also, black professional managerial households have much less wealth than uh, white um, households uh, with no uh, college degree. And so we clearly state um, in that section that the wealth gap that exists between African Americans in this country or European or white Americans in this country, you know, is it the result of, you know, African American deficiency or um, yeah, it's not the result of deficiency on on the part of African American culture. It's the result of um, the broken promise of reconstruction in this country um the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule the broken promise of protections for african americans um uh, during the reconstruction period and that is why uh, this wealth gap persists so much so that actually black americans we found have less wealth than they did um in in the height of the civil rights movement and so to answer your question more directly you know african americans now read this this report with an open heart, with an open mind. Read it with your friends. Read it with your family. Read it with your professional networks, even, um, because what it's going to do is going to be very empowering, right? Because so much so we're bombarded with messages in the media that you know our culture is deficient, um, that um, you know reparations is a handout, but this document clearly shows how you know local, state, and federal governments were complicit in actually working together um, to marginalize and discriminate against the African-American community to keep us um, at the bottom of this racial caste system.
3: Now, you mentioned your your final comprehensive plan. Um, I think a question that a lot of us who have sort of followed this topic all our lives um, would like to know, I guess, in your opinion, how likely is it that we will receive reparations in our lifetime?
2: I think it's likely. And I think even grassroots reparationists in California are saying that Black Californians may get reparations as soon as before you know, 2025, because you know, our report comes out in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some preliminary recommendations in the report that we just released uh, A couple of weeks ago. So technically, the California state legislature can take what's in this interim report and get to work and start drafting some some policy around Mm -hmm. the recommendations. Right. But the final recommendations that come out. And so people are already saying that, you know, the California state legislature, once they get that final report, can get to work and start implementing our recommendations as soon as 2024 and 2025. But in our interim report. Um, Since, you know, this is what makes this interim report so powerful is that we didn't only focus on California. In each of the chapters, right, that talks about the badges and incidents of slavery, Mm -hmm. um, there's a California breakdown that clearly demonstrates California's role in perpetuating atrocities against the African-American community. But in each chapter, there's also a federal breakdown that clearly demonstrates the federal government's responsibility Um, And perpetuating the atrocities against the African American community and in the preliminary recommendations, we, of course, have California facing recommendations, but we also have federal facing recommendations and one of them being that we're recommending that our report be transmitted to the Biden administration, and for him to create a commission on the executive level uh, for African Americans specifically. Um, And so the day that the report was actually released a reporter um asked biden's press secretary at a white house press conference whether biden you know saw the report um, and whether his stance on reparations would change based on the report so you know, that's great news that you know the federal government also already knows that this report exists um and so you know the goal is for not only california to implement reparations in the near future but for this task force to be used as leverage for the federal government to act um, sooner rather than later as well.
3: Yeah, that's that was going to be part of my next question, because, you know, with this happening in California, um, that obviously is it's very significant to, to have gotten this far, because a lot of times, you know, the conversations around reparations kind of begins and ends in the same session. But, you know, my question, I guess, was going to be something like, how do we take what you've you know, compiled here and um, use it as a template for the federal government. But it seems like you're on top of that. So I'll ask this, uh, what is it that folks can do on the state level or in their, even in their own communities in their own, uh, you know, us black folks, how can we help sort of champion this cause in our own day-to-day lives without relying on the federal government? Because as we know, there's a lot that goes into that, that, you know, is challenging That's putting it mildly. Um, But there's, in some instances, a lot more we can do on the state level. And since California is kind of leading the way, maybe there's something that folks in Arizona, for instance, can do, you know, Florida or, you know, Texas, et cetera. What would your recommendation to just everyday people be?
2: Well, my recommendation for everyday people who are interested in fighting for reparatory justice, particularly for African-Americans, I would just say stay engaged first and foremost with what you know California is doing, but also find like-minded individuals um, in your state, no matter who they are, what they look like. You know, if they're also interested in fighting for reparatory justice for African Americans, you know, align with them. Um, also do some research about your state's history um, in terms of of the state and the localities within them perpetuating, you know, anti-Blackness. This, this is something that I learned. You know, just by virtue of being a part of this process. Before this process, I didn't really understand or know, to be quite honest, that you know, California, you know, had at least over 1,500 enslaved Africans um, in their in their state. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. You know, two years after California entered into the union as a free state, they actually enacted a California uh, Fugitive Slave Act that was much more aggressive than the federal Fugitive Slave Act, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know you know, these types of facts, um, you know, could could be relevant uh, to um, wherever state that you reside. And those, those facts could be used to, you know, um, fight for repertory justice and be used to connect the dots for, you know, the outcomes of African Americans living today. Um, and so, yeah, i would just say stay engaged with the process, uh, connect with like-minded individuals, you know, do some research on your state's history and perpetuating atrocity against African-Americans. And I also I just want to note that there are some states who are you know already looking towards and lobbying for um, a reparations task force on a state level like New Jersey and New York.
5: Very good.
3: Well, um, for those who want to keep up with you specifically and what you're doing, um, is there a website? Do you have social media Any way for folks to tap in?
2: Yes. So if people would like to learn more about the task force and stay up to date, you can subscribe to our mailing list and you'll find that mailing list on our website, which is oag.ca.gov forward slash AB 3121. And you can find my personal Twitter page at Camila V. Moore, and that's V as in Victoria. And one more thing, The California Reparations Task Force, in efforts to increase community engagement and awareness, are hosting a series of community listening sessions this summer. And on June 18th and 19th, the task force will have a community listening session in Los Angeles, California, specifically Limerick Park. So you can find the task force on June 18th from 12 to 5 p.m. at Hot and Cool Cafe in Limerick, Park for a mixer, and then the next day at the Fernandum Pulum Community Arts Center at noon o'clock, you can meet the task force for a formal community listening session where you can testify about your experience living as an African American and what reparations should look like. And one more thing, folks can attend the community listening session virtually on both days on the 18th and 19th by watching ETM Media on YouTube.
3: Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your insight and, of course, all the work that you do. Once again, today's guest is the reparations task force chair, scholar and attorney, Ms. Camila Moore. Thanks again. And before I go, I'll leave you with this. Nicole Hannah-Jones notes in her book, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, quote, the only Americans who have ever received restitution by the American government for slavery were white enslavers compensated after the Civil War for their loss of human property, quote. With this ongoing and epic investigation into the hidden parts of American history, the ongoing needs and opportunities for reparations, and the now devastatingly detailed accounts obtained and formally documented, we have much to ponder. As our guest, Ms. Camila Moore, directly points out in the task force's June 1st press release, quote, This interim report exceeds expectations in substantiating the claim for reparations for the African-American, American freedmen community on the municipal, state and federal level, end quote. If successful, reparations for African-Americans will be unprecedented. And with this newly released information and upcoming final report, there seemingly has never been a time to be more hopeful. In the words of our late, great Congressman John Lewis, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? This has been a production of the Black Information Network. Today's show was produced by Chris Thompson. Have some thoughts you'd like to share? Use the red microphone talkback feature on the iHeartRadio app. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe and download all of our episodes. I am your host, Ramses Ja. on all social media. Join us tomorrow as we share our news with our voice from our perspective, right here on the Black Information Network Daily Podcast.
4: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are,